Imagine how much better the world would be if everyone woke up well-rested every day. That's why I and the team make The Sleepy Bookshelf. Join us in this mission. You can help by supporting the show via our premium feed, which will get you ad-free access to the entire bookshelf and exclusive bonus episodes. If premium isn't for you, that's okay. Recommending your favorite episode to a friend or family member is just as meaningful. Thank you for your support, and I hope you sleep well tonight. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. As always, I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning to Journey to the Center of the Earth. But before we open our book, just enjoy this moment to relax. You have nothing left to do and nothing to worry about. Take a big stretch in bed, feeling your muscles getting nice and heavy. Relax into your bed and let your mattress take your weight entirely. Let's take a few deep breaths now, inhaling and collecting any worries or concerns, and then exhaling letting them all go. Wonderful. Last time we were together, we met Professor Hardwig and his nephew, Harry, at their home in Germany. Professor Hardwig was reviewing an original copy of a very old Icelandic book owned by a prolific Icelandic scientist named Arne Saknussen, when a document fell from the pages. Written in runic script, it was unclear what the paper read, but the professor was determined to find out. After shutting the house up and denying his nephew food or sleep, until the mystery was solved. The professor finally went out for a walk. His nephew tried to distract himself with his usual tasks and thought about the professor's goddaughter, Gretchen, to whom Harry was to be secretly married. But eventually his mind turned back to the paper he realized that all you had to do was read the script backwards and the writing made sense in Latin. It read, Descend into the crater of Snæfellsjökull, which the shade of Scartaris caresses before the calends of July, audacious traveler, and you will reach the center of the earth. I did it. Arne Saknusum. Knowing his uncle would be determined to make the journey, Harry decided not to tell him what he had discovered. But when his uncle returned, he couldn't bear to see him so worked up. The professor, as predicted, directed Harry to gather his things for their exciting adventure. And that is where we pick back up tonight, with Harry trying to convince Professor Hardwig not to undertake the dangerous journey. So, just relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of journey to the center of the earth.
Chapter 4 We Start on the Journey You see, the whole island is composed of volcanoes, said the professor, and remark carefully that they all bear the name of Yokul. The word is Icelandic and means a glacier. In most of the lofty mountains of that region, the volcanic eruptions come forth from ice-bound caverns, hence the name applied to every volcano on this extraordinary island. But what does this word snaffles mean? I asked. To this question, I expected no rational answer. I was mistaken. Follow my finger to the western coast of Iceland. There you see Reykjavik, its capital, the professor explained. Follow the direction of one of its innumerable forts or arms of the sea, and what do you see below the 65th degree of latitude? A peninsula, very like a thigh bone in shape, I replied. And in the center of it? He asked. A mountain? I said. Well, that is Snaffles, he said. I had nothing to say. That is Snaffles, a mountain about 5,000 feet in height, he continued. It's one of the most remarkable in the whole island, and certainly doomed to be the most celebrated in the world. For through its crater, we shall reach the center of the earth. Impossible, said I, startled and shocked at the thought. Why impossible, said Professor Hardwig in his severest tones. Because its crater is choked with lava, by burning rocks, by infinite dangers, I replied. But if it be extinct, said he, that would make a difference, I answered. Of course it would, he said. There are about 300 volcanoes on the whole surface of the globe, but the greater number are extinct. Of these, Snaffles is one. No eruption has occurred since 1219, in fact. It has ceased to be a volcano at all. After this, what more could I say? Yes, I thought of another objection. But what is all this about Scartaris and the Calends of July? I asked. My uncle reflected deeply. Presently, he gave forth the result of his reflections in a sententious tone. What appears obscure to you, to me, is light. This very phrase shows how particular Saknusum is in his directions. The Snaffles Mountain has many craters. He is careful, therefore, to point to the exact one, which is the highway to the interior of the earth. He lets us know, for this purpose, that about the end of the month of June, the shadow of Mount Scartaris falls upon the one crater. There can be no doubt about the matter. My uncle had an answer for everything. I accept all your explanations, I said, and Sack Newsom is right. He found out the entrance to the bowels of the earth. He has indicated correctly but that he or anyone else ever followed up the discovery is madness to suppose. Why so, young man? asked the professor. Scientific teaching, theoretical and practical, shows it to be impossible, I answered. 
I care nothing for theories, retorted my uncle. But is it not well known that heat increases one degree for every 70 feet you descend into the earth? I asked, which gives a fine idea of the central heat. All the matters which compose the globe are in a state of incandescence. Even gold, platinum, and the hardest rocks are in a state of fusion. What would become of us? Don't be alarmed at the heat, my boy, he said. How so? I asked. Neither you nor anybody else know anything about the real state of the Earth's interior, he said. All modern experiments tend to explode the older theories. Were any such heat to exist, the upper crust of the Earth would be shattered to atoms, and the world would be at an end. A long, learned, and not uninteresting discussion followed, which ended in this wise. I do not believe in the dangers and difficulties which you, Harry, seem to multiply, and the only way to learn is like Arnasaknusum, to go and see. Well, said I, overcome at last, let us go and see, though how we can do that in the dark is another mystery. Fear nothing, said my uncle. We shall overcome these and many other difficulties. Besides, as we approach the center, I expect to find it luminous. I shook my head. Nothing is impossible. And now that we have come to a thorough understanding, not a word to any living soul, he said, our success depends on secrecy and dispatch. Thus ended our memorable conference, which roused a perfect fever in me. Leaving my uncle, I went forth like one possessed, Reaching the banks of the River Elba, I began to think. Was all I had heard really and truly possible? Was my uncle in his sober senses, and could the interior of the earth be reached? Was I the victim of a madman, or was he a discoverer of rare courage and grandeur of conception? To a certain extent, I was anxious to be off. I was afraid my enthusiasm would cool. I determined to pack up at once. At the end of an hour, however, on my way home, I found that my feelings had very much changed. I'm all abroad, I said. Tis a nightmare. I must have dreamed it. At this moment, I came face to face with Gretchen, whom I warmly embraced. So, you have come to meet me, she said. How good of you, but what is the matter? Well, it was no use mincing the matter. I told her all. She listened with awe, and for some minutes she could not speak. Well, I at last said, rather anxiously, What a magnificent journey! Oh, if only I could come with you, she said. A journey worthy of the nephew of Professor Hardwick. I should look upon it as an honor to accompany him. My dear Gretchen, I thought you would be the first to cry out against this mad enterprise, said I. No, on the contrary, she replied. I glory in it. It is magnificent, splendid, an idea worthy of my godfather. Harry Lawson, I envy you. 
This was, as it were, conclusive. The final blow of all. When we entered the house, we found my uncle surrounded by workmen and porters who were packing up. He was pulling and hauling at a bell. Where have you been wasting your time? He demanded. Your suitcase is not packed. My papers are not in order. The precious tailor has not brought my clothes, nor my gaiters. The key of my carpet bag is gone. I looked at him, stupefied, and still he tugged away at the bell. We are really off then, I said. Yes, of course, he said. And yet you go out for a stroll, unfortunate boy. And when do we go? I asked. The day after tomorrow, at daybreak, he replied. I heard no more, but darted off to my little bedchamber and locked myself in. There was no doubt about it now. My uncle had been hard at work all the afternoon. The garden was full of ropes, rope ladders, torches, gourds, iron clamps, crowbars, alpenstocks, and pickaxes, enough to load ten men. I passed a terrible night. I was called early the next day to learn that the resolution of my uncle was unchanged and irrevocable. I also found my fiancée as warm on the subject as was her father. Next day, at five o'clock in the morning, the carriage was at the door. Gretchen and the old cook received the keys of the house and scarcely pausing to wish anyone goodbye, we started on our adventurous journey into the center of the earth. Chapter 5 First Lessons in Climbing At Altona, a suburb of Hamburg, is the chief station of the Kiel Railway, which was to take us to the shores of the belt. In 20 minutes from the moment of our departure, we were in Holstein and our carriage entered the station. Our heavy luggage was taken out, weighed, labelled and placed in a huge van. We then took our tickets and exactly at seven o'clock were seated opposite each other in a first-class railway carriage. My uncle said nothing. He was too busy examining his papers, among which, of course, was the famous parchment. There were also some letters of introduction from the Danish consul, which were to pave the way to an introduction to the governor of Iceland, My only amusement was looking out of the window, but as we passed through a flat, though fertile, country, this occupation was slightly monotonous. In three hours we reached Kiel, and our baggage was at once transferred to the steamer. We had now a day before us, a delay of about ten hours, which put my uncle in a towering passion. We had nothing to do but walk about the pretty town and bay. At length, however, we went on board, and at half-past ten were steaming down the great belt. It was a dark night, with a strong breeze and a rough sea, nothing being visible but the occasional fires on shore, with here and there a lighthouse. At seven in the morning, we left Corsor, a little town on the western side of Sealand. Here we took another railway, 
which in three hours brought us to the capital, Copenhagen, where scarcely taking time for refreshment, my uncle hurried out to present one of his letters of introduction. It was to the director of the Museum of Antiquities, who, having been informed that we were tourists bound for Iceland, did all he could to assist us. One wretched hope sustained me now. Perhaps no vessel was bound for such distant parts. Alas, a little Danish schooner, the Valkyrie, was to sail on the 2nd of June for Reykjavik. The captain, M. Bjarn, was on board and was rather surprised at the energy and cordiality with which his future passenger shook him by the hand. To him, a voyage to Iceland was merely a matter of course. My uncle, on the other hand, considered the event of sublime importance. The honest sailor took advantage of the professor's enthusiasm to double the fare. On Tuesday morning at seven o'clock, be on board, said M. Bjorn, handing us our receipts. Excellent, capital, remarked my uncle as we sat down to a late breakfast. Refresh yourself, my boy, and we will take a run through the town. Our meal concluded. We went to the Kongersnitov, to the king's magnificent palace, to the beautiful bridge over the canal near the museum, to the immense cenotaph of Torvaldsen with its hideous naval groups, to the castle of Rosenberg, and to all the other lions of the place, none of which my uncle even saw so absorbed was he in his anticipated triumphs. But one thing struck his fancy, and that was a steeple situated on the island of Amag, which is the southeast quarter of the city of Copenhagen. My uncle at once ordered me to turn my steps that way. Accordingly, we went on board the steam ferry boat, which does duty on the canal, and very soon reached the noted dockyard quay. In the first instance, we crossed some narrow streets and finally reached the Vorfrelseskirk. This church exhibited nothing remarkable in itself. In fact, the worthy professor had only been attracted to it by one circumstance. Its rather elevated steeple originated from a circular platform, after which there was an exterior staircase which wound round to the very summit. Let us ascend, said my uncle. But I never could climb church towers. I said, I am subject to dizziness in my head. The very reason why you should go up, he replied. I want to cure you of the bad habit. But my good sir, I began to protest. I tell you, come, he said. What is the use of wasting so much valuable time? It was impossible to dispute the dictatorial comments of my uncle. I yielded with a groan. On payment of a fee, a verger gave us a key. He, for one, was not partial to the ascent. My uncle at once showed me the way, running up the steps like a schoolboy. I followed as well as I could, Though no sooner was I outside the tower than my head began to swim. There was nothing of the eagle about me, 
The earth was enough for me, and no ambitious desire to soar ever entered my mind. Still, things did not go badly until I had ascended 150 steps and was near the platform when I began to feel the rush of cold air. I could scarcely stand, and when clutching the railings, I looked upwards. The railing was frail enough, but nothing to those which skirted the terrible, winding staircase that appeared from where I stood to ascend to the skies. Now then, Harry, my uncle said. I can't do it, I replied in accents of despair. Are you, after all, a coward, sir? said my uncle in a pitiless tone. Go up, I say. To this, there was no reply possible, and yet the keen air acted violently on my nervous system. Sky, earth, all seemed to swim round while the steeple rocked like a ship. My legs gave way. I crawled upon my hands and knees. I hauled myself up slowly, crawling like a snake. Presently, I closed my eyes and allowed myself to be dragged upwards. Look around you said my uncle in a stern voice. Heaven knows what profound abysses you may have to look down. This is excellent practice. Slowly and shivering all the while with cold, I opened my eyes. What then did I see? My first glance was upwards at the cold, fleecy clouds, which, as by some optical delusion, appeared to stand still, while the steeple, the weather vane, and our two selves were carried swiftly along. Far away on one side could be seen the grassy plain while on the other lay the sea, bathed in translucent light. The sound could be discovered beyond the point of Elsinore, crowded with white sails, which at that distance looked like the wings of seagulls, while to the east could be made out the far-off coast of Sweden, the whole appeared a magic panorama. But faint and bewildered as I was, there was no remedy for it. Rise and stand up I must. Despite my protestations, my first lesson lasted quite an hour. When, nearly two hours later, I reached the bosom of Mother Earth, I was like a rheumatic old man, bent double with pain. Enough for one day, said my uncle, rubbing his hands. We will begin again tomorrow. There was no remedy. My lessons lasted five days. At the end of that period, I ascended blithely enough and found myself able to look down into the depths below without even winking, and with some degree of pleasure. Chapter 6 Our Voyage to Iceland The hour of departure came at last. The night before, the worthy Mr. Thompson brought us the most cordial letters of introduction for Baron Tramp, governor of Iceland, for M. Picturson, coadjutor to the bishop, and for M. Finson, mayor of the town of Reykjavik, 
In return, my uncle nearly crushed his hands, so warmly did he shake them. On the second of the month, at two in the morning, our precious cargo of luggage was taken on board the good ship Valkyrie. We followed and were very politely introduced by the captain to a small cabin with two standing bed places. Neither were very well ventilated, nor very comfortable. But in the cause of science, men are expected to suffer. Well, and we have a fair wind? Asked my uncle in his most mellifluous accents. An excellent wind, replied Captain Bjarne. We shall leave the sound going free with all sails set. A few minutes afterwards, the schooner started before the wind under all the canvas she could carry and entered the channel. An hour later, the capital of Denmark seemed to sink into the waves and we were at no great distance from the coast of Elsinore. My uncle was delighted For myself, moody and dissatisfied, I appeared almost to expect a glimpse of the ghost of Hamlet. Sublime madman, thought I. You doubtless would approve our proceedings. You might perhaps even follow us to the center of the earth, there to resolve your eternal doubts but no ghost or anything else appeared upon the ancient walls. The fact is, the castle is much later than the time of the heroic prince of Denmark. It is now the residence of the keeper of the Strait of the Sound. And through that sound, more than 15,000 vessels of all nations pass every year. The castle of Kronborg soon disappeared in the murky atmosphere, as well as the tower of Helsingborg, which raises its head on the Swedish bank. And here, the schooner began to feel in earnest the breezes of the Kattegat. The Valkyrie was swift enough, but with all sailing boats there is the same uncertainty. Her cargo was coal, furniture, pottery, woolen clothing, and a load of corn. As usual, the crew was small, five Danes doing the whole of the work. How long will the voyage last? asked my uncle. Well, I should think about ten days, replied the skipper. Unless indeed we meet with some northeastern gales among the Faroe Islands. At all events, there will be no very considerable delay, inquired the impatient professor. No, Mr. Hardwick, said the captain. No fear of that. At all events, we shall get there some day. Towards evening, the schooner doubled Cape Skagen, the northernmost part of Denmark, crossed the Skagerrak during the night, skirted the extreme point of Norway through the gut of Cape Lindesness, and then reached the northern seas. Two days later, we were not far from the coast of Scotland, somewhere near what Danish sailors called Peterhead. And then the Valkyrie stretched out direct for the Faroe Islands, between Orkney and Shetland. Our vessel now felt the full force of the ocean waves and the shifting wind. On the eighth day, the captain made out Meganis, on the westernmost of the isles, and from that moment 
we headed direct for Portland, a cape on the southern shores of the singular island for which we were bound. The voyage offered no incident worthy of record. I bore it very well, but my uncle, to his great annoyance and even shame, was remarkably seasick. This mal de mer troubled him the more that it prevented him from questioning Captain Bjorn as to the subject of snaffles, as to the means of communication and the facilities of transport. All these explanations he had to adjourn to the period of his arrival. His time, meanwhile, was spent lying in bed, groaning and hoping for termination of the voyage. I didn't pity him. On the eleventh day, we sighted Cape Portland, over which towered Mount Myrtle's yokel, which, the weather being clear, we made out very readily. The cape itself is nothing but a huge mount of granite, standing naked and alone to meet the Atlantic waves. The Valkyrie kept off the coast, steering westward. On all sides were to be seen whole schools of whales and sharks. After some hours, we came in sight of a solitary rock in the ocean, forming a mighty vault through which the foaming waves poured with intense fury. The islets of Westman appeared to leap from the ocean, being so low in the water as scarcely to be seen until you were right upon them. From that moment, the schooner was steered to the westward in order to round Cape Reckines, the western point of Iceland. My uncle, to his great disgust, was unable even to crawl on deck so heavy a sea was on and thus lost the first view of the land of promise. Forty-eight hours later, after a storm drove us far to sea under bare poles, we came once more in sight of land, and we were boarded by a pilot who, after three hours of dangerous navigation, brought the schooner safely to an anchor in the Bay of Faxa before Reykjavik. My uncle came out of his cabin, pale, haggard, thin, but full of enthusiasm. His eyes dilated with pleasure and satisfaction. Nearly the whole population of the town was on foot to see us land. The fact was that scarcely any one of them but expected some goods by the periodical vessel. Professor Hardwick was in haste to leave his prison, or as he rather called it, his hospital. But before he attempted to do so, he caught hold of my hand, led me to the quarter deck of the schooner, took my arm with his left hand, and pointed inland with his right, over the northern part of the bay, to where rose a high, two-peaked mountain, a double cone covered with eternal snow. Behold, he whispered in an awe-stricken voice, behold, Mount Snaffles. Then, without further remark, he put his finger to his lips, frowned darkly, and descended into the small boat which awaited us. I followed, and in a few minutes, we stood upon the soil of mysterious Iceland. 
Scarcely were we fairly on shore when there appeared before us a man of excellent appearance, wearing the costume of a military officer. He was, however, but a civil servant, a magistrate, the governor of the island, Baron Tramp. The professor knew whom he had to deal with. He therefore handed him the letters from Copenhagen. A brief conversation in Danish followed, to which I, of course, was a stranger, and for a very good reason, as I did not know the language in which they conversed. I afterwards heard, however, that Baron Tramp placed himself entirely at the beck and call of Professor Hardwick. My uncle was most graciously received by M. Finson, the mayor, who, as far as costume went, was quite as military as the governor, but also from a character and occupation quite as pacific. As for his coadjutor, M. Picturson, he was absent on an episcopal visit to the northern portion of the diocese. We were therefore compelled to defer the pleasure of being presented to him. His absence was, however, more than compensated for by the premise of M. Fredrickson, professor of natural science in the College of Reykjavik, a man of invaluable ability. This modest scholar spoke no languages save Icelandic and Latin. When, therefore, he addressed himself to me in the language of Horace, we at once came to understand one another. He was, in fact, the only person that I did thoroughly understand during the whole period of my residence in this benighted island. Out of three rooms of which his house was composed, two were placed at our service, and in a few hours we were installed with all our baggage. Now, Harry, said my uncle, rubbing his hands, the worst difficulty is now over. How is the worst difficulty over? I asked in fresh amazement. Doubtless, here we are in Iceland, he said. Nothing more remains but to descend into the bowels of the earth. Well, sir, to a certain extent you are right, I replied. We have only to go down, but as far as I am concerned, that is not the question. I want to know how we are to get up again. That is the least part of the business and does not in any way trouble me, he said. In the meantime, there is not an hour to lose. I am about to visit the public library. Very likely I may find there some manuscripts from the hand of Saknusum. I shall be glad to consult them. In the meanwhile, I replied, I will take a walk through the town. Will you not likewise do so? I feel no interest in the subject, said my uncle. What for me is curious in this island is not what is above the surface, but what is below. I bowed by way of reply, put on my hat, and fur cloak, and went out. It was not an easy matter to lose oneself in the two streets of Reykjavik. I had therefore no need to ask my way. The town lies on a flat and marshy plain between two hills. A vast field of lava skirts it on one side, falling away in terraces towards the sea. On the other hand is the large bay of Faxa, 
bordered on the north by the enormous glacier of Snaefels, and in which bay the Valkyrie was then the only vessel at anchor. Generally, there were one or two English or French gunboats to watch and protect the fisheries in the offing. They were now, however, absent on duty. The longest of the streets of Reykjavik runs parallel to the shore. In this street, the merchants and traders live in wooden huts made with beams of wood painted red, mere long huts such as you find in the wilds of America. The other street, situated more to the west, runs towards a little lake between the residences of the bishop and the other personages not engaged in commerce. I had soon seen all I wanted of these weary and dismal thoroughfares. Here and there was a strip of discolored turf, like an old worn-out bit of woolen carpet, and now and then a bit of kitchen garden in which grew potatoes, cabbage, and lettuce. In the center of the new commercial street, I found the public cemetery enclosed by an earthen wall. Though not very large, it appeared not likely to be filled for centuries. From hence, I went to the house of the governor, small in comparison with the mansion house of Hamburg, but a palace alongside the other Icelandic houses. Between the little lake and the town was a church, built in simple Protestant style, and composed of calcined stones thrown up by volcanic action. I have not the slightest doubt that in high winds its red tiles were blown out to the great annoyance of the pastor and congregation. Upon an eminence close at hand was the national school in which were taught Hebrew English, French, and Danish. In three hours, my tour was complete. There were no trees, no vegetation to speak, on all sides volcanic peaks. Thanks to the heat of the residences, grass grows on the roof, which is carefully cut for hay. I saw but few inhabitants during any excursion, but I met a crowd on the beach, drying, salting, and loading codfish, the principal article of exportation. The men appeared robust. Their clothing consisted of a coarse capote of black wool, known in Scandinavian countries as the Vandmau, a broad-brimmed hat, trousers of red serge, and leather shoes. The women wore a bodice and petticoat. When unmarried, they wore a little brown knitted cap over a crown of plaited hair. But when married, they covered their heads with a colored handkerchief, over which they tied a white scarf.